up with me, John 13. It's written down on the page for you so you can follow along. This is the word of the Lord. It's able to change you. It's able to resurrect you. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart or prompted Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his, Jesus's, not Judas's, his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and he put a towel around his waist. And then he went over and he poured water into a basin And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Well then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he had said, Not all of you, plural, not all of y'all are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should go and do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, or take my word, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled, a psalm he's quoting, that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel or stabbed me in the back. I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled. He was broken apart in his spirit, and he testified, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. We're jumping ahead about ten verses here. What's missing is the disciples whispering to each other at the table, Who's he talking about? Is it me? Is it you? and then Judas excusing himself from the dinner and leaving. When he had gone out, uh, Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while longer I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we need a leader like this, a king like this. One who stoops to serve, one who knows his people, who knows our needs, who knows how to care. One who will clean us, one who is able to clean us. Not just able to lead us, but able to change us. We try to elect these people every two years. We try to read these people's books. We try to be mentored by these people, but only you have the power to change us, Jesus, our King. And so we pray that even in these next few minutes together, you would begin to do that or continue doing that. Clean us, wash us, teach us, speak to us. Let us be with you. Do something supernatural, not just natural, not just a lecture, a message where people's minds are all over the place. Do something supernatural that we can't explain because of our own brains or eloquence. We ask this in your name, amen. I want you to imagine a few scenarios with me, if you would. The first, uh, imagine what these people's demeanor, body language, thought process would be like. A campaign manager yesterday morning at the culmination of three years of her work, but she has a whole day to watch polls come in, votes come in, election results come in. Or a head football coach who's in the locker room with his team and momentarily they're about to run out to face a Clemson or an Alabama in the national championship and everybody's saying they're going to get crushed. A Navy SEAL in the back of a bumpy C-130 in the middle of the night over Afghanistan. Nobody knows they're there. But all the guys on the plane have kind of begun to think this is a suicide mission. A mother of four who's spending time with her kids. The morning she'll be rolled back into an operating table for a 10-hour surgery to try to take a cancerous tumor off her brainstem to give her one last shot at life. What would the thought processes of those people be? What would their demeanor be? Facial expressions, body language. What would their attitude be? Would the football coach be frantic and panicked, trying to rehearse plays in his head, remember tapes that they've been watching and studying all week? Would he be irritable and short-tempered, like sending all of his assistants away, go ask somebody else, get away from me, I'm in the zone? Would the mother be panicked and preoccupied with fear? Is this the last time I'm going to be with my kids? Or would she be present? Would the Navy SEAL just be quiet, stoically sitting there, just thinking through the raid that's going to happen? Or would they be talking? Would they be helping each other? Better yet, in this particular passage, where is our Lord Jesus' mind? on this night. What would his face have said if you'd seen it? Body language, his attitude, his comments. What would it have been like? In all the scenarios I gave you, you really see the real person come out, right? 
because these are unscripted moments. Nobody has time to act or re remember training or whatever. You're just, you're fully human in that moment and the real you's coming out for better or for worse. Your irritability, your frustration, your calmness, your peace. Whatever's inside is brought outside. It's all improv in those moments. Jesus here in this real historic account isn't acting. This isn't on a stage where he's been given some lines and he's just reading them out robotically until the next scene comes and the story moves on. It's all improv. It's his most natural instincts that you're seeing come out here. Some of it's a little choppy, it's hard to understand. We'll talk about that, but what you just heard read to you, what you're looking down at your page is the knee-jerk reflexes of the living God his deepest innermost uh, impulses and instincts. What does he do in these moments when he flinches because of what's coming next? So listen, whether you know Jesus or not, this is a great story to tune into. I assume that you're here tonight, you have some degree of interest either in the people here or in this person uh, but this is something where we all get to tune in and pay attention. What is he like then? What are these most deep instincts about him like? Um, I also wanted to bring up these things because if you grew up around Christianity, the Bible, the church, you've probably heard this stuff before, especially the next few weeks when we get into kind of what's called as the passion accounts or the narratives of Jesus' last few days on earth. Even the fact that we know it's his last few days means we read the story in a certain way because we know what ending is coming. The fact that we know what Nathan preached about last week, that Jesus would in fact raise up out of death, the first human to survive death because he's innocent. The fact that we know that means we read the story a certain way. We kind of speed read through it because we know where it's going to go. The fact that we're familiar with some of these details might mean that we think Jesus is just kind of reading some kind of a script. We're like a director who's directing the play for the 17th time, and we're kind of a little bit half checked out because we're just mouthing the words as the actors on the stage are, are saying them. And I especially want to point this out because John, the author of this account, goes out of his way to tell us a lot of things that Jesus did know. Specifically, four or five times, he tells us Jesus knew a lot about this, what was going on. Did not mean that he was robotic, that he was on autopilot, that he was a, an actor playing out a script. It just means he was fully in control of the situation, surprised by none of it. But you are seeing real impulses, real instincts, real reflexes come out. What did Jesus know? Verse one, Jesus knew that his hour had come. If you've been with us this fall and you remember themes of the past few weeks, there's a lot of moments where Jesus has told people up to this point, it's not yet my hour. My hour has not come. He told his mom at the wedding of Canaan, remember way back into August when we talked about that first sign, the first miracle? Jesus' mom said, hey, they've run out of wine at this wedding. Can you do something about that? And he said, my hour hasn't come. He says it repeatedly other times, and now he's saying he knows that his hour has come. The clock has ticked down. He knows his days are numbered. Verse three, he knew that it was for this purpose him being in Jerusalem, to be kind of put through uh, a sham trial, unjustly accused, 
and publicly murdered. He knew it's for that purpose that I came. Because behind the scenes of that sham trial and that execution, God was delivering his people out of darkness decisively. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that one of his own would betray him. That was not a surprise. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, though nobody else that night knew. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Son of Man himself must suffer and die. Jesus knew that he would soon drink the consequences of everything that you and I have done that we're terrified about facing God for and answering to him for. Jesus experienced the fear of what it would be like to pay up our unpaid bills to a just and holy and fair God. He knew all of those things, and he knew that nobody would remain with him. Every single one of these people would leave him in the next 72 hours. That's what Jesus knew. But again, don't take all the stuff that Jesus knew as Jesus floating above the details, hovering above the difficulty, the complexity, the darkness, and the doom of it all. He's in it. He's doing improv. We're seeing his deepest character come out here. And in his moment of trouble, will he be preoccupied with himself? Will he be paralyzed with fear? Will he be, be kind of the good Christian man who's stoically unfazed and says, I know I have a place in heaven with my father, and he just kind of soldiers on? Is that who we see come out in this moment? The short answer is no. We see a savior, a rescuer, a fighter who wants to be with his people. He didn't have to be. He had the weight of the world on him. His mind was just breaking apart with the intensity of what he knew was just around the corner. He was disturbed, deeply unsettled. We'll see it in the, in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane we'll look at in a couple of weeks. That was his state. But he wanted to be with his people. Not distracted, not get out of here, not I don't have time for this, not divide and conquer, delegate, but dinner together with all of them. John is going to slow down his story majorly at this point. The first 12 chapters of his, of his account of Jesus, he spent on the first 33 years of Jesus' life. The last nine chapters are only going to cover three days. 33 years and 12 chapters. Three days in the other half of the book. John is slowing down. John is getting high definition with every detail for your eyes to be glued to what's happening and what it means to you and me. He wants you to see Jesus's instincts. He wants you to see what this unprecedented improv uh, savior does. He wants you to see his character come out. So enough of the buildup. What was his love for his people like? Because remember, that's the first thing I said we were gonna talk about is what is his love like? And how does he want us to love other people? How does he love us and how does he want us to love other people? Well, how does he love us? What did he do? John writes this beautiful line in verse one. Having loved us, or sorry, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Which is to say he loved his people to the limit. Or we might say he loved them to the nth degree. Or Buzz Lightyear from a couple of years ago would say he loved us from infinity and beyond. Whatever your phrase is, Jesus loved us. He was all in. There was no pulling back at the end, no hesitation. 
no flinching back. He loved us to the end. But what did this look like? How did Jesus love us? What did loving them to the end look like? Well, this is the odd part. And it was odd then as much as it is odd now and a little bit enigmatic. Then as it is now. How he loved his people in this consequential moment with the weight of the world pressing down on him is what John talks about in verse 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his, Jesus' hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing that at some point in the meal, he stands up. And at this point, probably nobody had noticed that he stood up. And then he laid aside his outer garments. And at this point at a dinner party, I think I would have taken notice. Why is this person undressing in the middle of dinner? And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And now probably it's silence. And everybody stopped their little hushed side conversations and they're looking over at him like, I, I'm, I was not aware there was entertainment at tonight's dinner. Is this a program or something? What's happening? We're going to play like Pictionary or something and guess who he is. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin. And I think at this point, there might even be a little bit of discomfort. What is he going to do? They would have recognized his outfit by now. This is what slaves wear. This is how little houseboys dress. And then he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. And at this point, I guess it's stunned silence. Peter was the only one who was either impetuous enough or I don't know what Peter was, but he's the only one that says something, but he must have gotten through a few disciples before he gets to Peter, and they're just like, what? What is he doing? Uh, we were studying this passage with the interns the other day. We, we go through these passages a week ahead of time to try to get all of their insights and input in as well, and you know, I just, the, the question popped in my mind right in that moment, and I was like, well, so what would y'all do with like, with, with no warning in the middle of a staff meeting, um, I'm just like, I get down on the floor and start taking off your shoes and like start washing your feet. And the faces they made were uh, disturbing and contorted of just how weird and awkward and unsettling and just, that's, that's not the relationship we have. Uh, that would be a game changer for the way I look at you and the way you look at me. And that's actually a helpful reaction because it would have been the disciples' reaction except even more so. It, and that's what I want you to get from this is there was not some huge custom of teachers, rabbis, washing their disciples, their students' feet. In fact, scholars will say that they have found no historical precedent anywhere in the ancient Near East of any superior washing an inferior's feet. It didn't happen. There's no record of it outside of John 13. Rabbis don't stoop to that level. Rabbis are dignified and honorable. They have status. Even disciples would never do this to a rabbi. It's not accidental that Peter's response to Jesus is, you'll never wash my feet. He didn't say, I should be washing your feet. Wouldn't you have expected him to say that? Lord, this is backwards. I should be the one serving you. I should be washing your feet. Peter won't even offer that, because even that is outside the realm of possibility. It didn't make sense. Feet are weird now, and feet 
were weird then. I know there's a hot debate in RUF every springtime and summertime are flip-flops in or out, and the giant consensus is they're out. And the reason why is you say people's feet are disgusting. Their toes, all the weird stuff on it, the weird shape of their feet. That's today when we take care of our feet and wear closed-toed shoes most of the time. But imagine a culture where everywhere you went, you walked, and everybody wore sandals. And there were none of these like lotions and creams and foot care products that we put on or socks. And your feet became the Velcro of everywhere you'd been. Everything you'd done stuck and layered on. And that's your feet. The only people, because of this, the only people who washed feet in a first century Judaism context were slaves, and not even Jewish slaves. This was such a debased practice, such a, just a, an unthinkable thing for people to do to each other, that, that Jewish slaves, uh, the, the Jews forbade their own people who were kind of indentured servants. They weren't allowed to do, you couldn't make that kind of person do this. Only kind of foreign slaves could wash feet like this. That's how low we're talking. So do you understand what I mean when the, I said the disciples have no category for what's happening? None whatsoever. This is uncomfortable for them. This is unsettling. This wasn't a normal practice. They're squirming. Feet are weird now. Feet were weird then. And these disciples, um, we didn't read this, but if you flip back in your Bible one page, you'll see John chapter 12, which is describing Jesus kind of like in an inauguration parade. He's coming into Jerusalem as king. It's Palm Sunday. Everybody's coming out to the town and saying, the Messiah, the king, the high up one, he's here. It's Jesus. Everybody has a category for Jesus Christ as king, as triumphant king, who calls you to serve him. But the question that Jesus asks you in this passage is, do you have a category for Jesus the slave who came to serve you? I know you have a category for Jesus as one who gives commands. Do you personally, I'm asking you individually, do you, can you wrap your head around Jesus Christ, the living God in the flesh, the redeemer of humanity, coming as a slave to serve the likes of you? To handle some of the ugliest, dirtiest, unmentionable parts of you? to clean, and to wash. Ross Bird wrote a song. His song said, once, I sought, once all I sought was but to climb religious ladders in my mind, but there my God was never found. He had descended to the ground to wash my dirty feet. When sinking down into despair, the Son of God, I found him there. With sinners he had come to call, and I arrived the worst of all, but still he welcomed me. You remember what I told you? It's in this latter half of John that you're gonna see your God most clearly as he is. His heart of hearts on full display, his every instinct paraded right before your watching eyes, his character, his reflexes, his loves, his delights, his desires, his reputation. Low-hanging fruit, easy to see, 
this is Jesus. Jack Miller, a church planner, an old church planner up in Philadelphia and ended up around the world said, the Lord Jesus does not run from us in our state of decay and smelliness. He said, I tell you, when Jesus deals with us, he does not pretend that we are lovely and odorless, but it's in the midst of our odor that Jesus draws near. I tell you, Jesus is something else. It's in the midst of your odor, in the midst of the contortions and the things that you hide with stuff, with clothes, with personality, with humor, with an edgy personality or whatever. It's those things that Jesus approaches you and I in the midst of. So what odor is Jack Miller talking about? Jesus is obviously up to more than kind of a cosmetic foot washing. That would be super weird, right? And this was not a customary practice of his. It was the only time we know he did it. He didn't do it before this night. He didn't do it after. This wasn't like his thing, his niche, foot care. Uh, he's, he's obviously doing something for a very specific reason. He's trying to show his disciples something in this practice of getting down on the floor and what would have had to have taken 20 or 30 minutes with, with 12 people. He's showing them something. And it, it is, I mean, talk about a, a, an awkward moment in a small group where there's like 30 seconds of silence and it feels like an eternity. Imagine how long this felt as you're sitting there watching the one that you have come to believe is God in the flesh on the floor handling your feet and all the crap that's stuck on it from all the places you've been, the places you shouldn't have been, the places you tried to cover up, the places you wished you hadn't have gone, the places you didn't know how to get out of, and his hands are on it. And you're the one above him. You're up here and he's down here. And he's washing. And your smell is now on his hands. And your dirt is now on him. What kind of washing was he talking about? You know it's not just about the feet. That's absurd. Jesus is clearly showing them and telling them, it's your souls that need washing. Your souls are the, are the Velcro of where you've been and what you've done. Everything that's stuck to them. And your bodies and all of who you are, it's just like, it's, you can do an archeological dig, kind of like do like cut us in half and find all the layers of all the stuff, all the places we've been, all the hurt, all the shame, the embarrassment, the stuff we will not talk about, the secrets, the places we will not let other people see. That's what Jesus says has to be washed. He told Peter in verse eight, Peter, if I don't wash you, not your feet, Peter, come on. If I don't wash you, you have no share in what I'm doing, what I'm about, what I have come to do. What did Jesus come to do? Isaiah 118 pointed to this Jesus. Isaiah said, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Um, when I lived in New Mexico, one thing I loved about that place is it snows every winter, at least once or twice. And it's the desert, so it's gone like four hours later. The sun just like vaporizes it. But it snowed a lot, and I loved it. And there were parts of the desert uh, that were just the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. And there were parts of the desert that were just scrub, tumbleweeds and all kinds of other stuff. It just was ugly. Uh, and when it snowed, one, of, one year when it snowed, one of my students at New Mexico State RUF just put on his Instagram this verse. And I've always associated, every time it snows now, I love it. Because I'm like, this is visual depiction. God is reminding me what he's done 
with my sin. When it snowed in the desert, it didn't matter what was underneath the snow, it blanketed, it covered it completely, you couldn't tell. And what was ugly and unattractive was gorgeous. Everybody was stopped by the side of the road taking pictures of the landscape. Though your sins like scarlet, like crimson, I will make them as white as snow. They were red, though they were red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. When someone sees you at your worst, as you really are, you know, and I, maybe it's a silly and kind of dumb illustration, but like there's body parts all of us have that we wish looked different and we try to cover them up, right? You only wear chacos if you're okay with your toes, right? You only wear certain kind of clothes if you're okay with your shoulders or your, your thighs or whatever. Imagine someone seeing the thing that you're ashamed of or wish, just so wish was different. And instead of you being pushed away and shamed and condemned in that moment, that person moved towards you and brought restoration of dignity in that place. Healed you. Washed you. Released you from that. When that happens, it changes you. Some of you are from Chattanooga. You know Joe Novenson. He's a legendary pastor in our circles. And Joe Novenson um, I mean, I've heard him described as the human Aslan, so that gives you a sense of this guy's, like, his gravity and his, his holiness and his godliness. Just an amazing man, very gentle man. But uh, he, had a, he had an accident that if you know Joe Novenson, you know about his accident because he talks about it all the time. It's his go-to illustration for everything. But Joe Novenson, when he was a young uh, man, uh, he was up in a steel mill in Pennsylvania or something working, and he was uh, working this um, sheet metal machine, and his his hands got caught in the rolling pin, this several ton rolling pin, and it crushed his hands and mangled his fingers. And he went through something like 20 or 30 operations to try to restore any sense of his fingers being on his hands. And they were reattached, but he has no feeling in them and everything. But the problem was this accident happened during his first year of marriage. And he described, and I'm hearing him tell this story a few years ago, which is probably 40 years after it happened. And he cries when he tells this story, but he said, my wife had to bathe me every day. My wife had to wipe me. Every time I went to the bathroom for a year. He said, that year together, where she saw me in the most, just with waste all over me, just humiliated. And the way that she loved me, day after day, set the course for the next 40 years of our marriage. 40 years later, he's still weeping at the thought of the story. When someone sees you as you are and handles you in a restorative, washing, releasing, healing way, it changes you. Jesus changes you in the way that he loves you and me. This cleansing that we receive from Jesus is a once-for-all cleansing in one aspect. Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Peter, come on. Verse 10, the one who's bathed does not need to wash. And then he says right after that, um, uh, you are clean. So he says in one sense, if you are in Jesus, if you are one who has seen your desperate condition and has seen in Jesus a receptive, welcoming God to sinners, to bad people, to good people who became bad again every week for backsliders. 
you've seen in Jesus a compatible Savior who has come for people like you, and you put your faith in him, what Jesus says here is you have been cleaned once for all. But then he also says to Peter this weird metaphor of like, um, hey, Peter, the, the, if you've taken a shower, like let's say you took a shower earlier tonight and then you came here to RUF and like your pen started bleeding on you, you got ink on you. Would you, would, you, would you go take a shower again or just go wash your hands? You just go wash your hands. You're clean, your hands just got a little dirty. And Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, someone who's bathed uh, is clean. All they need to do is wash their feet. He's saying, Christian, though you are clean, though I have cleaned you once for all, you are innocent. You are pure. You are holy because I've made you holy. He's saying there is still this daily need for you to come and wash in me. Not because there's a gun to your head of condemnation if you don't but because doesn't your soul become burdened with your own guilt and shame again every day? Don't you do things that make you forget that Jesus has stooped down and served you even in your sin, in your your mess? And he's saying, you are clean, but you you still need to come. We're on a short leash. Keep the bathroom door open. You need to come to me all the time for these cleansings, these reminders that I have cleaned you. The last thing I want to say before I end with some application, I just want to end at a place of what does it mean for us to love each other? What is the, how does Jesus accomplish this cleansing? Down in verse 21, Jesus says something interesting. He says, um, after saying and doing all this stuff with the foot washing, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he said, one of you is going to betray me. When he says, I'm troubled in my spirit, identical language, identical language that John, this author, writes there that John wrote when Jesus approached Lazarus's tomb. You remember we talked about that? He just overwhelmed with turmoil in his soul, deeply unsettled, angry, raging. That's Jesus right now. Remember how we started. That was going on in Jesus the whole time he was serving and loving his people to the end. Did it distract him from you? No. It drove him to you. Did he say, guys, I gotta have an early night, I got a big day tomorrow? No, he stayed. Where Jesus cleansed you is what we're gonna be talking about the next few weeks, on the cross. That's where Jesus cleans people because that's the place where you see a dirty man dying for our dirt, our grime, our filth, our waste. And that's where you see him conquering and cleansing and washing his people in his clean blood. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't understand this now, guys, but one day soon you will. They didn't know it'd be three days later. You'll totally understand exactly why I'm washing your feet. I'm about to go wash your soul once for all and yours as well. So friends, what does it mean that we should wash each other's feet? Because Jesus does the application here. I didn't make it up. Jesus said, hey, listen, one more thing. You see, I'm your Lord and your your master. I am king. I came into Jerusalem as a king because I am a king. That wasn't a mistake. What should you do about tonight, he says? What's the takeaway? I'm your master and I stooped down as a slave to get down on the floor and serve you. You should serve and love each other that way too. He said, y'all should love each other that way. Um, This has to have a local significance. This is not abstract. 
I'm talking about the way you love the people in your local church, or if you're still searching for one of those right now, the way you love people in RUF. Don't leave here thinking, oh, the way I love my abstract neighbor. No, the way you love the people in the seats in this room. The way you love the people in your church. That's who Jesus is talking about. He's being specific. He's not letting us go off and philosophize about, oh, we can do this project and this service project. He's talking about the people on your row. How will you love them? One is trading status. It's like Philippians 2, where he says, God, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, even a slave, becoming obedient, even to the point of death, and even on a cross. He stooped, he stooped, he stooped, he stooped, he stooped. So seniors, this means it's not beneath you to get to know a freshman this year, even though you're graduating soon. It's not beneath you to be happy about put, getting in a circle with a sophomore or a transfer student who just showed up and you don't even know them yet. It's not beneath you. Why? Because your master has loved you like that. It's not beneath you if you're in a dominant culture to go to one of your brothers or sisters who's not and instead of declaring things about what their experience is like or should be like, humbling yourself and asking what it's been like. Saying, you know, I know you, but I've never heard that part of your story, but can, would you give me the gift of letting me hear? Friends, that's washing feet. Jesus isn't calling us to do these weird foot washing services. Now foot washing has been dignified. It's a Christ-like thing. For Jesus, it was slave-like. Now it's like it makes you look humble to everybody. Then it made you look like an idiot. Who is beneath you? Who do you see as beneath you? Jesus is saying, start with those people. What is beneath you in serving your neighbors, in loving your neighbors in the church? That's where Jesus is saying, that's probably the X on the map where you and I can start. That's where we can put other people's interests ahead of our own. That's where we can be done with competing with each other, with me sizing you up. Are you cooler than me? Are you funnier than me? Do you have more friends here? Are you connecting faster than me? We can just, we can, we get to die to that stuff. And we get to say, I don't have time to be preoccupied with that and serve and love you. I got to choose and I'm going to go this way. Friends, Jesus has freed you and loved you for this very end. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you died on the cross to clean a people. You didn't metaphorically clean us. You didn't kind of illustratively clean us. You cleaned us. The way a soul is cleaned is to have divine, clean, holy blood shed on our behalf. You have sanctified us. You have made us holy. You have set us apart as your own. Now help us to love like this, that the world might see something supernatural about our relationships. Not natural, not planned, not programmed, but supernatural. We pray this in your name.